All right, we have a great episode of Side Retired, the MLB podcast coming at you guys today. Bill Ballou, who writes for the Telegram and for the Gazette, a huge Boston Red Sox reporter since 1987, will be joining us today. He's also a Hall of Fame voter, so we'll get into a lot of that, as well as his time with the Red Sox and what is like the difference to cover a major league team as well as a minor league team. Lots of fun. So with that, let's get right into today's episode. Hello and welcome to today's edition of Side Retired, the MLB podcast. It is Dylan joined alongside Harry as always. And today we're going to continue our theme of looking in depth at a particular MLB team, bringing on an expert for that team. Today we are joined by Bill Ballou, who's going to be covering the Boston Red Sox. I believe you've been covering the Red Sox since I think 1987, if I have that correctly. So Bill. That was my first year and I I retired full time. After the 2018 uh, season, I, I follow them closely because I now cover on a daily basis the Worcester Red Sox, which is a AAA affiliate right up the road from uh, my house here in Whitensville. So, yes, uh, I still follow uh, both teams uh, very closely. Awesome. So it seems like a nice baseball longevity story. So I think if you want to just let us know, since obviously you're our most sort of baseball analyst that we've had on with us, how did you get into the baseball industry initially and sort of decided that I want to be covering the Boston Red Sox and now obviously you must love it so much that even once you've retired you're still obviously going at it and covering the Worcester Red Sox they had uh it's it's interesting my uh first uh, uh I was a big Red Sox fan I saw my first Red Sox game in 1959 and mm-hmm. uh uh, my dad took me in and uh, he said I want you to be able to tell your kids you saw Ted Williams play <laughs> And that was that turned out to be very significant because that's one of the factors I use when I vote for the Hall of Fame. Is this player good enough so you would bring someone in just to say that you saw them play? Mm-hmm. And, and not not many players reach that level. There are some very good players out there, but they're not guys you would buy a ticket just to say, uh, I can tell my kids I saw him play. So 59, I was a big Red Sox fan uh, through some terrible years. They were terrible from 59 through 66. 67 was the impossible dream year, which is the most memorable season I've ever experienced as a fan. And then uh, I went to college, University of Massachusetts, and I worked on the paper there and covered hockey, uh, mostly some football and baseball. Uh, And when I got out, I worked for a couple of smaller papers. And uh, the Telegram hired me as a news reporter in 1985. And when the Red Sox job opened up in 87, I applied saying this should be fun and I get hired and it was fun. It was, it was, I mean, uh, if you can imagine getting paid to go to baseball games uh, for 30 something years, it was a good way to make a living. And, and it was, a, it was a wonderful time and uh, uh, they were great years. And now uh, the Worcester Red Sox, it's a somewhat different atmosphere. The players, you know, they're not expected to win every day. Uh, they have the new uh, pace of game rules in place. Uh the games are, you know, two hours and 20 minutes, two hours, 30 minutes, a lot of fun to cover. Young guys on the way up uh, and some guys like uh, the uh, the Sox began the year with Rob Snyder, who was uh, everyone thought was a 26th man. And he got called up and he had a great season for the mm. Red Sox. So it's interesting to see, guys, it's not just about player development in the minors. Sometimes it's player redevelopment. And Snyder is a great example of that. He, he found the right place at the right time with Boston. And it was fun watching him uh, be a major contributor this year. So that's that's how we got into baseball writing, and uh, it was a it was a great job, and I still follow it. 
Yeah. And, and what kind of goes into a job like that? You know, you mentioned going to baseball games. I know that personally, when I was at one of our school's basketball games, I was lucky enough to sit behind a bunch of a row of journalists. And I thought that what they were doing was really fascinating. So what was kind of what was kind of the uh, the the operating procedures of being you know, a journalist, especially for so long, both at the major and minor league levels? And, uh, well, it's interesting. The games last, major league games last three hours now. Uh, when I started, they lasted two and a half. Uh, but it's still a lot. It's, it's generally speaking, it was a 10-hour day. You'd get there 3 to 3.30 uh, to get prepared for the game. You'd talk to players before the game. When I first started, there were no cell phones. And uh, uh, the players, you know, the locker room was open for three hours. And they would talk to you because that was what you did. You talked to people. And there were still guys from the 80s and 90s that I keep in touch with, that I became very friendly with, uh, even after their baseball careers ended. That doesn't happen anymore uh, because our locker room access is restricted. Plus, they're always either in the trainer's room or on the cell phone. You just don't get to know them very well. And it's not because they don't want to be friendly. They just have other things to do. But you still you still get there early. And then you, know, you, you follow the game. And for morning paper, like the Telegram, uh, you have to file a couple of stories. You file one for the very first editions, and then you go back and sort of clean it up and file a second one. So you wind up writing uh, four stories a night. You write one game story, one notebook, and then early and one game story, one notebook later on. And sometimes things happen that you have to, you know, someone gets hurt. Uh, so you wind up writing an extra story. So there's a lot of writing involved. and um, But most of it happens at the end of the day. It seems like you're doing nothing for six hours, and then you work like crazy for two or three or four hours. Uh, that's the nature of it. And the, you know, the telegram always traveled with the Red Sox uh, and the travel was fun. Uh, you know, you, I, I've been to a zillion different cities, a di- zillion, zillion different ballparks. Uh, and, you know, I brought my wife along many times, my kids along sometimes during school vacations. It, it was it was truly a great job, but it wasn't just a three hour job from first pitch to last pitch. There's a lot involved. Plus, you have to follow what's going on in the offseason as well. So it's a complicated job. But uh, it was, I never felt like I was going to work. It was still a lot of fun the entire time. And then you did also mention sort of the pace of play and that games used to be two hours, 30 minutes. And now yeah. I think the minor leagues are still at that time while major leagues are pushing three hours, three and a half hours. I think one of those big differences might be the pitch clock, which I know covering the minor leagues, you might have gotten to see up close and personal over the last year or two. Do you think that's actually, because I believe, Harry, correct me if I'm wrong, that's coming to the major leagues Next year, the actual pitch clock, I think it's 16 seconds that pitchers have to deliver the ball. Do you think that's going to be an interesting change to the league? Will pitchers be able to adopt to it? And I guess you've already seen some minor leaguers have to adopt to it with um, it being implanted in the minors last couple of years. They've adapted very well. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's also there's also a batter's clock. The batter has to be in the batter's box. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's interesting is you only get two throws to first base. And after that, the guy gets gets the base. And that really cuts down on it tremendously. It cuts down on the time thing. The players adapted very well. Uh, the major league players uh, are a little spoiled in that regard. Uh, there may be some some uh, some griping. And the umpires all say, if major league executives will enforce that rule and back us up when we call balls and strikes on guys and they, they complain about it, we'll, we're fine with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they don't, then why bother? So it's going to be up to the executives. But it works very well in the minor league level. Uh, the basic uh, thing is that as long as the rules are the same for everybody, the rules are okay. And, uh, and pitchers understand that and batters understand that now. How it translates to the majors, that's a different story. But I think if it does translate well, 
you will see a big difference, not just in the length of game, but the pace of games. It mm-hmm. quickens everything. Guys get on and off the field quicker between innings. Everything happens faster. It's a much more enjoyable experience to watch the game. Uh, and uh, I think that's going to work really, really well. It did work very, very well at AAA. I guess in transitioning more to the major league team here in you know, the Boston Red Sox, one of the big questions this offseason, outside of Xander Bogarts, who we'll get to in a second, but is Rafael Devers, who has just really followed up on a fantastic young start to his career and has really blossomed into one of the best, most nuclear offensive shortstops in the uh, offensive third baseman in the MLB. And now it's time for some extension talks. And the Red Sox maybe didn't have as great of a season as they thought they would. Where do you think that the team not only stands on that, but where they think? ultimately should go uh, with extension talks on Rafael Devers. Well, Devers being a young player, he came up very, and, and, and Bogarts, as you mentioned, they both came up very, very young. So this isn't, you know, if they extend, if, you know, they give Bogarts a new contract and extend Devers, it's not like, you know, the Red Sox have been famous in the past for giving uh, like parting gifts. I mean, they <laughs> signed Dustin Pedroia for a long time after he was past his prime. That was like, thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. Uh they're not going to have to do this with these guys. These guys, you can assume, expect, you can hope that they're going to be productive players for you know several years after this. So from that standpoint, extending Devers and re-signing Bogarts makes a lot of sense in terms of competitive. Does it make financial sense? Nothing in Major League Baseball makes financial sense. So take that out of the equation. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, what you want to do is, is put a roster together that can, can compete uh, at a high level for three or four years, something like that, then you have to rebuild a bit. And so from that standpoint, I think retaining both of those players uh, would work to the Red Sox advantage. They should. Devers is a, you know, Devers is not only just a, a great player numerically, he's an exciting player. He's one of those rare guys that when he comes up to bat, you hear the fans <laughs> will like murmur and they'll put down their beer in the hot dogs to watch what's going to happen. That's a unique skill, a uh, unique trait. And I think that's why keeping Devers uh, locked up for uh, a longer time is probably their most important thing this season is to make sure he's going to be with them for a good long time. And then I think another guy that's like that, that people will hopefully in the future sort of watch intently with the Boston Red Sox is probably Tristan Casas, one of their top prospects. I believe he spent some time this year at AAA. So did you get to see Tristan Casas up close, do you think he's actually going to live up to the hype that it seems like everyone is putting get see, on him? I see a lot of Tristan Casas. But he, he came up at the end of last season, too, mm-hmm. at the very tail end of it. And the nice thing about uh, the minors is that it's more relaxed. You get to you know just chit-chat with some of these guys. And Casas is a very impressive uh, prospect, not just physically, his abilities, but he has a great sense of the game. He knows the game's history. He's a big Miami, uh, a big Marlins fan. He's from that area. And he, he talks very intelligently about that. Mm-hmm. And he works really, really hard. You see him out there all the time doing extra work, uh, conditioning, fielding, all the things that go into be- becoming a well-rounded player. Uh, great knowledge of the strike zone. Uh, it's funny. You thought that with him, he'd hit tons and tons of home runs in Worcester because, A, the, it's as a short right field and the wind always blows out. But he hits very well to left center, which will – you know, stand him in good stead at Fenway Park because he can use that wall. But doubles mm-hmm. uh, and, and you know, Wade Boggs and Fred Lynn, great guys, use the wall a lot left-handed bats. I think Cass is, is going to use the wall really, really well. He has great, great power. Uh, you need it in Fenway Park. That's a long poke to right field. It's 380. Uh, but I think Cassis uh, is going to be the player they thought he was going to be. Uh, I was very impressed with him both on, both on and off the field uh, during this past summer in, in Worcester. 
taking a little blast to the past. Um, you know, we're coming up on now 20 years since the the famous 2004 World Series in which the Red Sox kind of bur- broke the curse of the Bambino and finally reasserted themselves on top of the baseball throne. As a longtime Red Sox reporter, what did that World Series win truly mean to a guy like you who has really been around during the times where they were struggling and, and kind of just couldn't quite get over the hump, uh, but finally did so and, and had a really good team to do it with, especially considering all the shenanigans, you know, with the, the Yankees that season and coming back from down 3-0. Well, how was that moment significant? At the time, uh, nothing. Uh, oddly enough, I remember I was in St. Louis and my wife was there with me. She, she, she couldn't get tickets to the game. So she was watching a game four. Uh, at the hotel bar. And uh, I remember her telling me that, uh, it, you know, they were ahead three games to zero in the series and they're ahead going to the ninth inning. And one of the uh, St. Louis people there said, why aren't you celebrating? He said, you don't know the Red Sox, do you? <laughs> that's why she wasn't celebrating. And I remember I called her just as Renteria came up to the plate. Uh, I called her and said, I think the Red Sox are going to win the World <laughs> Series. And the next thing I knew is he hit a ground ball back to Falcon Silver. And said, oh, my God, the Red Sox did win the World Series. I've got to go to work. Goodbye. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> and then uh, then you work like crazy. This is, this is a historic event. So you work like crazy. The game gets over late because of TV and there's a celebration. And so for the next uh, three hours, I just wrote my head off. And then after the games, every World Series game, they'll have a, a, a media reception afterwards. And then I went to the media reception, had some chicken fingers and barbecue sauce, and then it realized I just I've just seen one of the most historic moments in baseball history. But it took a while to sink in. It really did because you're so focused on the moment that you don't think about the you know you just I got to get this done and how am I going to write this and what's the lead and who am I going to talk to? Uh, and and I had a day off after that. We booked the booked the hotel and the flight uh, for you know going three games in St. Louis, not two. So I had a day off, and uh, uh, that was when it really sunk in. Is all of a sudden you know. Here, this is it. I, this, I was part of history. I had no idea they'd win three more uh, World Series in the next upcoming years. Uh, but it was it was it was remarkable to uh, uh, to be part of that. But the day after was remarkable to be part of that because at the time it was just crazy getting all the writing done. Uh, it, it, it's interesting in 2003 when they lost to the Yankees there in, the, in Game Seven, and 2004 when they came back. Those were two of the most, probably the most intense years covering sports I've ever experienced because there was something happening every single day and it was drama. And both of the teams, the Yankees were great, great teams. Uh, and so the base, the quality of baseball was fabulous. Uh, and uh, I look back on that. And I, I, I think about it. I said, this will never happen again, not least in my lifetime. But it was a remarkable stretch of baseball to cover for those two years in particular. And then obviously the emotions definitely were different in 2003 of the Aaron Boone versus Tim Wakefield walk-off home run. And then especially in 2004, probably the exact opposite emotions getting to see the comeback from down 3-0 to beat the Yankees. I know one of the players that probably was really a key piece of not only the 2004 World Series, but also, as you mentioned, the other World Series that followed after that is David Ortiz. I assume he's one of those players that covering the Red Sox for years and him being with the Red Sox for over a decade, you got to know him at least a little bit or got to see what it's like to cover him for a couple of years. Ortiz, he was a good guy to cover. He was very outgoing, uh, uh, almost always glad to talk to you. Not 100%, but all, no one is in baseball. Mm-hmm. It's a long, long season. You see these guys day after day after day, and they get sick of you, you get sick of them. But he was very approachable. Uh, he was very quotable. And uh, he was a remarkable player in his ability you know, there is there's some baseball analysts that don't believe in the uh, in the theory of clutch hitting. 
And uh, I don't know. I think David Ortiz was a clutch hitter. And I, I had this long-term debate with Seattle Mariners fans over Edgar Martinez. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never voted for Edgar Martinez for the Hall of Fame. And it, it may not be fair. He just didn't have the same presence as David Ortiz did. I mean, when, when the game was on the line and Ortiz was up there, it was bizarre, but you almost were certain he was going to deliver some sort of a hit. And he usually did. And that's an unbelievably difficult thing to do in baseball because the pitchers know who they're facing. It's not like he's a mystery. Uh, and so that was it, his his uh, years with the Red Sox were very, very dramatic uh, and very, very exciting. And he was very he was very interesting to cover. Yes, he was. It was, you know, it, it was a memorable several years uh, with David Ortiz there, uh, especially in the postseason. Uh, the number and in the regular season, the number of walk off home runs he hit was like off the charts. You know, guys had two or three for the careers. He had like 13 or 14. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was uh, he was a, a very memorable player. And uh, uh, I was glad I get the chance to cover him close up for, for all those years that he was active. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have a name who is significantly and endlessly more controversial than David Ortiz, who it seems like everybody kind of universally loves, Roger Clemens. I know he's had the PEDs run. I know he's had an absolutely stellar on-field career. I know he's maybe not the most well-loved person off the field, but where where are your thoughts with uh, on Roger Clemens? And, you know, maybe do you think that the sheer power of his resume can kind of overweigh some of the other things that would discourage a lot of voters to vote for him for the Hall of Fame or I always know. voted for him. Uh, I was uh, I'm, I'm uh, first of all, uh, I know that private businesses and private life isn't the same as the legal system, but. He's never been proven to do anything. He's been suspected. Well, I always thought you're innocent until proven guilty. Secondly, with the Hall of Fame, I, I vote for Bonds and those guys. Gaylord Perry, who was way before you guys, is in the Hall of Fame, and he admitted to having thrown a spitball. Well, that's cheating. So why <laughs> is one sort of cheating okay, but the other sort of cheating isn't? And what about the guys that used amphetamines in the 60s? I just can't sort that all out. So I go by what their numbers were. And if baseball recognizes Clemens' wins and strikeouts and all that, then I recognize him as well. I will say that the years I covered Clemens from 87 till he left uh, after the 96 season, and uh, he's the best pitcher I've ever covered. He really is. In those years, he was fabulous. And he would pitch. And this is the days when you didn't have pitch counts. He would pitch with hurt, you know, sore arms, sore everything. It was his job to pitch, and he would pitch. And uh, he was he was just overpowering at times. And I actually liked Clemens. I think Clemens is misjudged. Uh, Clemens was famous when he was in Boston for doing all sorts of charity work. And, he, and one of the one of the things was, I'll come, I'll come and visit your hospital. I don't want anyone to know about it. Mm-hmm. And I know that as, as a chairman of the writers in Boston, we had our baseball writers dinner every year, and we would often invite him. And if he could make it, he would make it even after he left the Red Sox. And he would never charge us expenses. We said, well, we'll pay. No, no, I'll come up myself. Uh, I, I liked Clemens quite a bit to deal with. Uh, one of my favorite Clemens stories uh, is uh, back in the, it's going to be the early 90s, is uh, back when the clubhouses were open late. And I, I had forgotten to talk to somebody. I had to find some player. And I said, oh, I think he's in the, he's in the clubhouse. So I went back in the clubhouse. He wasn't there, but Clemens was the only guy in the clubhouse. He was sitting at his locker with a big aluminum trash can next to him. And he wasn't throwing stuff into the trash can. He was taking stuff out of the trash can. I said, Roger, what are you doing? He said, I'm answering my mail. I answer all of my mail. I'm two years behind, but I'm catching up. (laughs) So he answered all of his mail. And so that said something to me as well. So I think Clemens is misjudged. I liked Clemens a lot uh, then, and I like Clemens a lot now. And uh, I have always voted for him for the Hall of Fame. He's not on the ballot anymore, but I've always voted for him for the Hall of Fame. (laughs) 
I like it. I think he's also on that special committee, I think, this year where they're judging a lot of players. I believe it's from 1980 to 2000. There's a ballot of eight new players that I think includes yes. Clemens and Bond. So hopefully he gets that well-deserved second shot at it this year and might be able to get in. Um, hey, I, yeah. I, I hope so. I always voted for him, and I, I, I think he deserves to be in, and I, I hope he does get in. Uh, so then... And this this year's Hall of Fame ballot is a weak one. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm going to vote for anybody. Uh, I've I've done that before a couple of times. Uh, you know, not not all Hall of Fame classes are created equal. There are some years when when just aren't, uh, and some years there are three or four guys. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those down years. I don't think there's anybody that stands out as 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 a a, hall, a true Hall of Famer. What does the Hall of Fame voting process looks like look like for a guy like you? And you know, is it usually when you kind of receive the names or you just kind of know who's on the ballot in a given year you automatically just kind of know who who you are and aren't going to vote for or is there do you kind of have more of a, a careful vetting process and you think you have a good idea but you double check and you kind of look at a player's overall statistics or some of their key moments or some of their their biggest memories as a player what kind of how what decide what makes you decide whether or not I'm, you're gonna vote for something? I'm a Hall of Fame hard ass. Uh, <laughs> I think you have to be incredibly good to get in. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of as as I mentioned, the Edgar Martinez David Ortiz thing, a lot of it is gut instinct. It's not just numbers and statistics. Uh, you know, it's a Hall of Fame, not the Hall of Skill. Uh, there's a difference there. Uh, it is unfair. You know, players in big markets like New York and Boston tend to have a greater presence. So that's life. I mean, it's it's unfair that I that, you know, my you know, I couldn't throw the ball faster than 40 miles an hour. I couldn't play <laughs> baseball beyond high school. You know, that's not fair. But that's life. I, I tend to have a good idea of who I'm going to vote for from having watched them. And when the ballot comes in, I know who I'm going to vote for. Uh, and the one thing I do is I don't believe they should be. You should be on the ballot for 10 years. You're on the ballot once. Uh, and. If you, but you're not limited to voting for 10. You can vote for as many as you want. Mm-hmm. Nothing about your career changes after after you're on the Hall of Nothing changes. So why 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 would you change? And the idea is, well, maybe in the, as you look in the rearview mirror, this guy looks better than he was. Well, maybe he does. There are also guys who look worse than they were, but you're not going to take anybody out of the Hall of Fame. So it's like a one-way street. So I keep track of everyone I voted for through the years, and I always vote for the same guys when they're on the ballot, and I never vote for someone I haven't voted for because nothing about his career has changed in, in those years, in those five years, or even 10 years. And when I first started, it was 15 years. I mean, <laughs> Jim Rice and, and uh, Bruce uh, Suter, classic examples. I looked them up. Their first years in the ballot, they got below 25% of the vote. And their last years, they got 75%. They got three times better. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand that. I mean, what changed about their careers in the, in the span of 10 years or 15 years? I don't understand any of that. And so that's why uh, I tend to be very black and white about who I'm voting for. And then looking at this year's ballot, I don't think, as you sort of alluded to, there aren't that many standout candidates. I know former Red Sox, John Lackey, Jacoby Ellsbury, and then a former Met, Carlos Beltran. I don't think anyone there is sort of stand out with as for sure going to be a Hall of Famer. I guess Beltran's probably the most interesting guy out of all of those players, but Definitely on the weaker side. There is no Chipper Jones, David Ortiz. That's a for sure. Yeah, that guy's a Hall of Famer coming in this year. Yeah, you know, it also can be hard. And, and one of the one of the and I think that the Baseball Association has done a wonderful job through these voting for guys. You know, uh, you know, and that back in the seventy five percent, they have to get in. Uh, mm-hmm. I very, I don't have in my life. I haven't seen many National League players. 
Mm-hmm. I, you know, now that there's interlocking play, I, you see them every so often. But there's a lot of guys I haven't seen much of. And voting for the National Leaguers can be tougher. Fortunately, mm-hmm. we have like 400 different voters. So there are guys from the National League who have seen them and, and they can sort of compensate for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's one of the hard parts is even you can't even watch the games on TV because generally I'm at the ballpark you know, <laughs> when the other when the other teams are playing. So it's like, I'll watch the Braves while the Red Sox, I can't do that. And then by the time you get home at two o'clock, you might catch a couple of things of a West Coast game, but it can be hard. The, the, the National League is definitely been harder for me than the American League. The American League guys, I mean, it's it's not even a thought process. I know exactly who should be in. Uh, the National League can be tougher, but that's why we have voters from every single city in baseball, uh, and it sort of evens out. And you know, I'm a I'm a major Cincinnati Reds fan. All right, and you you don't have to reveal anything if you don't want to, but. Joey Votto has been a very, very controversial selection in the past few years. A lot of people, especially kind of the more new age crowd is saying, myself included, he probably should be in the Hall of Fame where there's still a decent amount of pushback to those who think he shouldn't. You know, you don't you can reveal as much or as little as you possibly want to. But just what's what are your what's your stance on Joey Votto as a player? Votto is Votto is a very interesting guy, as you mentioned. Vada was one of those guys who is a game changer, can be a game changer. Uh, he's one of those guys who, if you go to the ballpark uh, and he comes up to bat, people put down the beer to watch. I mean, he, he you know, every at bat with Vado is an adventure. So from that standpoint, I think that he does, um, his presence uh, extends beyond his pure numbers. And so Votto is, to me, he is a very interesting candidate to Votto is. Uh, I'm on the side of, yeah, he's one of those guys that, uh, is more than just the numbers in terms of his presence. And uh, uh, I don't know if fan appeal is the word, but I mean, you know, people really follow Votto and I understand what Votto was doing. So, yeah, um, I'm, uh, you know, yes, Votto was a very interesting candidate for me. Awesome. I like it. And Harry, I'm sure you're good. Glad to hear that because as a Cincinnati Reds fan, not a ton to look forward to right now, but the end of Joey Votto's career is definitely something fun as he tries to chase down a couple of milestones these last couple of seasons but i know the red sox definitely an interesting offseason coming ahead rafael devers extension talks xander bogart's free agency nathan avaldi is also a free agent but definitely a time of lots of fun and bill we definitely appreciate you coming on with us and talking a bunch of red sox talking about your career some hall of fame fun and all of the great insight and laughs and fun that we've had over the last half an hour but unless there's anything else harry that you want to throw in mr blue if there's anything else you want to throw in Obviously, thanks so much for joining us. We definitely appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks, and nice to talk with you guys. Thank you so much. Great news. Side Retired is now partnered with SeatGeek. For all ticketing needs, go to SeatGeek.com and use promo code SIDERETIREDPOD in all capitals for $20 off your first order. We've got you covered from all things ranging from sporting events to concerts, including the Boston Red Sox, Taylor Swift, and the NFL. Yes, this means we're officially taking you out to the ballgame. And now for the rest of today's edition of Side Retired Podcast. All right, Harry, a great episode with Bill Ballou, Boston Red Sox insider reporter since 1987. What did you take away from this interview? It was absolutely awesome to see somebody who's been around the industry for so long and really hear a lot of perspectives from a guy like that. And, you know, especially since we're some of the younger minds in baseball, but it's also awesome to hear from some of the older minds in baseball. So 
I had a blast. A lot of, a lot of fun talking current Red Sox, Hall of Fame, the Pitts Clock, and a bunch of insights. So we hope you found this interview really interesting. Of course, we'll have more content out for you later this week, even though it's Thanksgiving week. But hope you have a great Thanksgiving if we don't hear from you before then. And with that, the side is retired. Retired.